welcome back to the Remember Who Made Them podcast. I'm Venetia Lamana, one of the co-founders of this campaign. If you're new here, I encourage you to listen to our previous full episodes. And if you like what you hear, please do rate, review, subscribe and share the episode on your social media. It really helps us get the fair fashion message out there. This is the second part of our two-part special on labour organising and we're diving into what happens when garment workers organise and build power for better conditions and pay and how we as consumers and allies can be better aligned to reimagine new solidarity economies in fashion. In part one, we gathered more information on worker organising, how collective bargaining works and how we as consumers in the global north can do more. In this episode, we want to learn more about what happens to groups when they organise. Headlines are rife with human rights abuses in fashion, exploitation, sexual harassment, safety oversight and union busting. We speak to business and human rights to understand exactly why and how brands are responsible for these violations. Speak to organisers from Comité Fronterizo de Obreras, Border Committee of Workers on the Mexico-American border to understand the violence faced by groups every day. And to Fondo Semillas in Mexico on how we can better resource and fund the change we seek. As we have stated a few times now, the interviewing for this has not been straightforward. Technology, translation and scheduling were a bit difficult, but in spite of all that, we are just so grateful for the connections we made. With all that said, let's start listening. I'm going to hand over to Swati. Hi everyone, this is Swati. I'm super excited to welcome Tulsi Narayana Sami, who's the Senior Labour Rights Lead for Business and Human Rights. Hi Tulsi. Hi Swati. So grateful for you to join us. Tulsi, we'll start as we always do in this podcast, um, which is to ask you what you're wearing. We all wear clothes. A lot of us love our clothes so much. um, And we wanted to draw that connectivity back to the people who made them. I am wearing a top that I have been wearing far too much during lockdown, um, which is my favorite red top from Oaxaca in Mexico. Um, and it was, you know, made by a small cooperative there and um, ended up getting it tailored by a tailor that I had while I was living in Mexico. So it's um, it's very dear to me and very worn out. Dulce, could you share with us more about business and human rights? What do they do? Um, what's your role? And how are they connected into bettering the fashion industry as a whole? Yeah, sure. So um, like you said, I'm the Senior Labour Rights Lead at the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre. And the work that we do on labour rights uh, in the apparel industry is really through the lens of corporate accountability. And basically what that means is we consider what the structures are of the brands that work in an industry like fashion um, and how to make them respect the rights of workers more. So it isn't just looking at how we can better support the ability of workers to organise or defend their own rights. We also look at things like what makes it permissible for companies to get away with exploitation? Do we need to have better regulation? Do we need to have more transparency so we can better understand what exactly it is that they're doing on the ground and within their own businesses to further the rights of workers or um, or curtail the rights of workers. We follow up with allegations of human rights abuses, which happen far too often. 
Um, and we get those allegations either directly from local unions or from the international labor rights movement, so organizations in, in the US or in Europe, um, as well as through our regional researchers that are based um, in the global south. And we basically take those allegations directly to the companies. When the brand responds and ordinarily with us, um, they tend to, we then can go back to those workers and they can then respond to what it is that the brand has said. And in that way, we provide a space for transparency. During the COVID period, it allowed us to be able to see that for example, union busting um, using the uh, the difficulties that have been thrown up during the pandemic as an excuse to get rid of workers who have formed unions. You know, that kind of thing came up to us because we noted that we were seeking um, responses to allegations, especially of this kind. I mean, ultimately, you know, we're not in the forefront um, where workers are who are ultimately best placed to to fight for their rights. We really are in a position of solidarity, you know, here largely in the global north, trying to kind of bring a much stronger corporate accountability um, and to really kind of demystify the system. Why do you think that the fashion industry is so susceptible to human rights abuses? I think, you know, it's not just that the fashion industry um, is susceptible to exploiting workers. It's, it exploits workers as a fundamental part of its business model. Um, it's not really a mistake, unfortunately, that workers all over the world, none of them are paid a wage that's enough to live on. And I think we really need to grapple with, with the fundamental indignity of, of how we've enabled that to become permissible within this industry. You know, it's, it's an industry that makes enormous profits and has billionaires at the head of a number of these brands and we need to really consider what does that mean what are profits um, and what are shareholder dividends that are, are churned out to shareholders of all of these brands if the workers who are mostly women of color based in the global south don't have enough to live on um, so I think you know it's pretty clear to many of us who work on this how exactly this has come to be and the production of clothes in the fashion industry, you know, it's again not a mistake that it predominantly happens in, in countries in the global south because, like you mentioned, you know, there are, you know, these colonial structures that are really perpetuated and um, we see that with the fact that the labour of that's very, very cheap um, of workers in the global south is then used to kind of um, clothe people predominantly in the global north. And th the value of those clothes don't really reflect the value of that labour. Um, and that's really the fundamental issue. And another really big part of how this happens is what we call the purchasing practices of brands. And basically what that means is the way that the big brands that we're familiar with buy the clothes from their factory suppliers, um, wherever they may be. So for big brands that we're familiar with, you know, one brand would, would uh, source their clothing from, you know, 15 or 20 different countries at least, and they would have hundreds of factories in each of those countries. So the, the garment workers that are making their clothes are not technically directly employed by these brands. And we see that as a way of being able to kind of outsource 
the exploitation of workers because they can't ultimately be held responsible for what happens to workers in those factories because unlike the workers that we would encounter in shops, um, they're not considered directly employed. So it's a really easy way for the brands to essentially scapegoat their exploitation onto their suppliers. You mentioned earlier something um, that has come up during the pandemic in the UK. So in Leicester, it came to light, for example, that the brands that were sourcing from Leicester were sourcing from factories um, where workers aren't being paid a minimum wage and during the lockdown in the UK they were still um, being forced to work and weren't provided with any personal protective equipment. So that really came as no surprise to many of us who've been following these issues but the real question was how can this happen? How how in a country where we have kind of rights that we take for granted can this still happen to workers? And and I guess one part of the answer to that question is that it's an industry that does this everywhere it goes. You know, they can determine the way in which the clothes are made, how quickly they're made, how much they'll pay for them. And suppliers really don't have much of a leg to stand on to be able to push back and determine how to better protect workers through those purchasing practices. So I think it's an industry that really um, is built on that. And so any kind of changes to ensure that workers are better respected and have lives of dignity needs to address it at that kind of structural level. Yes, I think we would definitely agree with all of that. And you provided such um, brilliant um, expertise and analysis for us to really mull over and think about. We interact with brands ourselves. We we see and we hear these headlines about uh, abuses, sexual abuses that have been happening in Lesotho recently. The, you know, modern slavery charges happening in Leicester, um, you know, below minimum wage going to garment workers in L.A. at the moment. When you raise these kind of issues with brands, what do you think a good response from the brand would be to these kind of allegations? The most important kind of hallmark of a, of a better brand response is when they immediately accept responsibility for the allegations of abuse that happen in their supply chain. You know, I think it's it's very easy to give kind of spin, um, which in a lot of ways kind of co-ops language of, of social movements and of the labour movements and represents it back in a way that really doesn't show that they're, that they're taking responsibility for a case that's being brought to them. The cases that we usually bring to brands are on um, are about a specific abuse. So for example, a factory in Myanmar has been firing their unionized workers, uh, we know that they are producing clothes for you, can you respond? And a good response would show that A, that they have some awareness that this is already happening, which shows that they're at least, you know, attempting or have strong relationships with their suppliers where the supplier is keeping them up to date about these kinds of things. The other kind of thing that we would really like to see is that they say yes and we recognize that we have a responsibility to be actively engaged in resolving that issue. When you look at the responses from brands, unfortunately, this isn't the kind of thing that we see very often um, because like I mentioned earlier, it's it's really easy for them to evade responsibility and they do that in lots of different ways. One of the ways is they'll say, oh, you know, we source from this factory, but we source a very small percentage um, of the total production in that factory because one factory might be 
might be making clothes for say two or three different brands and they'll say that it's just a small amount that we source from that factory and it's very difficult to be able to verify that because there just isn't that level of transparency in the supply chain to be able to do that but if a brand can come to the table and really take responsibility and if we can hear from workers and from local unions that yes the brand is coming to the table and actively engaging in genuinely trying to resolve a dispute that's really what we want to see. I think that was a a brilliant um, response and analysis for us. For many of our listeners what are some of the risks that workers take um, not just working in this job but also organizing to try and change things? The importance of being able to organise in and of itself, um, and in human rights terms, we call that freedom of association um, and collective bargaining, um, which are two different human rights. We we really think about them as enabling rights. So they're the rights that if you are able to work collectively together, if you're able to be able to then negotiate with your employer for better conditions, That for us is really the most fundamental of all labour rights because it allows all of these other rights to a safe workplace, you know, to freedom from harassment um, in the workplace and all of these other things to really be realised. So it's of critical importance to be able to protect that. But it's also one of the issues which is, is so difficult and constantly contested. You know, I haven't really ever met a worker who is unionized in a factory who hasn't faced incredible levels of intimidation or um, retaliation for their organizing. So the stakes are incredibly high for workers who organize in factories. It's it's dangerous, but also hugely necessary. But it it's undertaken with with a lot of um, bravery, and I just I stand in awe every day of workers who are able to do that because. You know, I think we take for granted um, that we can, you know, you know, call up and join a union whenever we want. Um, And it's just not that easy for workers. So that's really, you know, one of the rights that we see constantly coming under threat um, for workers. All of these um, these rights are really not just difficult for them to assert within their workplace, you know, there's also the, the much bigger context of the states, um, so the countries where these factories are not doing so well at respecting um, these rights. In, in a number of countries, actually four countries in Asia that we've tracked, they, the workers who then went and took to the streets to be able to fight for their wages or their rights to stay at work or for severance pay, those protests were met with force. Um, so the use of police um, took place. And so you really see this kind of convergence of the state supporting um, the factories um, who are ultimately doing the bidding of the brands. And that's why it's a really tricky thing. Um, to ensure that brands like respect the rights of workers within their supply chain because they don't have that direct relationship with the workers and the the way in which they say that they're supporting the human rights um, of workers within their supply chains is through code of conducts. So they would have a contract with their supplier factory and within that contract they would say that we expect for you to respect the rights of workers to join a, a trade union and to organize collectively but ultimately the purchasing practices that they have the way in which they expect for the clothes to be made at a very low price 
very quickly. That directly undermines the ability of human rights to be realized because in order for those suppliers to be able to meet the demands of the brands, the workers have to work incredibly long hours. Um, they have to work incredibly fast, which leaves them with not enough time to have a break. And they do all of that for a wage that doesn't allow them to have three meals a day. So the brands really need to take more responsibility for the systemic nature of how they do business, which has a direct impact on workers. Also just want to draw listeners to um, attention of a brilliant report that you guys have also just put out very recently around um, union busting and unfair dismissals um, and just looking into specific brands, including H&M, Primark, Mango and others. Um, We've also just been sharing on the Remember Who Made Them platforms actually around how um, workers that are based in Myanmar and actually providing uh, manufacturing supplies for Primark, um, you know, they've been recently charged, uh, you know, with um, cases by the actual factory owners themselves, like because they were organizing. When we talk about union busting, what are some of the examples of how, what are the tactics that brands or suppliers use around actually union busting itself? Union busting just refers to basically a range of different tactics that are used to either stop um, the formation of new unions or to erode the power of existing unions or workers who organise. The way in which the union busting has been happening since the pandemic took place um, has been through a number of ways. So one of the ways is that the suppliers who have, have historically had problems with their unions, um, they're using this as an excuse to be able to get rid of them. So in one of the cases that we had in our report, which looks at nine different cases, um, they say, oh, we've had reduced orders from the brand and so we're going to shut down production in this factory that we own um, and it just happens to be the one factory out of, say, 10 factories that one supplier owns that is unionised. Another way that they do it is to say, again, we have reduced orders and so we need to minimise the size of our workforce and then the workers that end up getting dismissed are workers who are, who are unionised and belong to a union. And when you see it happen so systematically in so many different countries that it's just the workers who are part of a union who are getting dismissed, it becomes a trend that we then are able to say, okay, this is clearly union busting, a crackdown on, on trade unions. It has what we call a chilling effect. It, it means that workers then feel so much more scared to be able to organize. And when the stakes are already so high, when you're only earning poverty wages, um, it really sends shockwaves through the workforce. Chilling is is the right word, I think. Dulce, you spoke earlier and, and we loved what you said um, just around how um, business and human rights is really about being in solidarity with workers from the global north to the global south. How could we as listeners be in solidarity better with workers in this situation? What do you think that we could be doing as consumers to exert the most pressure on brands? The thing that we have really noticed in doing this work is how much brands fear reputational risk. Social media has provided such an incredible opportunity for workers 
to have their voices heard and for those voices to then be elevated by activists um, in the global north who want to support. We saw this for many of the cases of union busting. It would come to light that there was an issue where workers were striking to be reinstated, to get their jobs back after they lost them for being unionised. And their voices were elevated so quickly on Twitter and on Instagram by folks who really cared, who said, actually, this isn't right. We're going to raise this directly with the brand in whatever way we can. And and I really just want to urge listeners to do it as much as possible because it genuinely makes a difference. And and I know it, it, it can sometimes seem a little frivolous to be doing something like that on social media, but it has a genuine impact on the lives of those workers because the brands are very nervous about the way that their image looks. They spend a huge amount of time and energy and money on presenting a certain image of being responsible and caring and even feminist to to their consumers and to be able to essentially call that out when there are instances of abuse in their supply chain is really, really powerful. Um, And to me, that's what solidarity looks like. It's considering what power do you have available to you to be able to elevate the fight that is being had on the ground by workers. There should be a way for our own governments to hold corporations accountable for human rights abuses that happen in their supply chain. If ever you see calls for stronger corporate accountability, all that really means is that we want to ensure that workers have a right to have dignity within their workplace. And so, and when there are calls and there are petitions to do it, um, it's so important to get involved because it definitely makes a difference. You know, you've shared so much wonderful expertise, wisdom, and just such powerful responses. There are a lot of fire and star emojis and heart emojis on our WhatsApp group in the background. Um, Just wanted to offer one final question, um, which was as we look ahead towards trying to come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, try and reimagine new solidarity economies that actually center people and planet at the core of them as businesses. What is your vision for the uh, changes we need to make? It sounds really simple, but I think the first thing that we need to recognize is that This system is fragile. This is a system that has been deliberately created. It's not a natural system to have 80 million workers not paid enough to live on. It's something that has been created. Brands were able to decide not to pay their orders because they were able to find loopholes with which to do that. If they're able to do that, I think we're able to say it's not good enough, the current system. I think we need to be much bolder and expect so much more for the lives of the people who make our clothes. And I think the first call that we have to make all together is that it's possible to pay workers a living wage. The fact that workers were hit with, you know, an instant humanitarian crisis, with starvation, with homelessness, with not being able to send their kids to school because they didn't have enough money to be able to do that. It's not okay. We wouldn't expect that for ourselves and we shouldn't think that it's okay to expect that of women of colour in the global south. So my vision is is a world that is just fairer. It's for a fashion industry that's fairer. And it for me, the existence of billionaires, the fact that brands can make billions in profits, that they can pass it on to shareholders, that CEOs 
can become rich, while the workers who are incredibly skilled and make all of these beautiful clothes that we wear every day, um, that those people don't have enough to live on. I think we can start by changing that. And I think what it will take is for us to all demand better um, and for us to be able to have a way to ensure that they have no choice but to start to pay workers living wages. And I really believe that's possible. Thank you so much uh, for that. I think we are 100% behind you in that demand for um, actually making sure whatever we reimagine as a solidarity economy and a new solidarity economy is not just fair, uh, but actually puts workers at the core and the heart of it. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining this week's episode to continue solidarity with garment workers. So in our last few episodes on the podcast, we've had a chance to hear from garment workers across Asia. And now I'm really excited to take us to Latin America, to Mesoamerica, and specifically to Mexico, to hear about the conditions of workers and the fierce work being done by labor rights organizations. Having lived the last seven years on and off in Mexico is also a place um, that's really close to my heart. The cancelling of orders in the pandemic have been actually slightly higher in Latin America at, rather than Asia, and with wages being frozen, health standards not being upheld in factories, uh, garment workers have been really harshly impacted by the pandemic and of course exploitation dates back long before this um, and the Mexican context is also very very complex, very fragile and really layered with extreme levels of violence so really high rates of femicide, backlash and assassinations of women's human rights defenders um, and extreme corruption and presence of a multi-billion dollar drug industry of organized crime. So the risks are real. Garment factory workers, when they come together and organize, are really, you know, facing some incredible odds and a really complex um, context of power and, you know, risk. So, um, you know, today we're going to hear a little bit about that context and hear a bit about how, you know, workers are still coming together in the face of that that reality. So I'm really excited today to be talking to Julia Quinoz. Um, she's the coordinator from the Committee Fronterizero de Obreras, the committee border committee of workers, um, an organization in Mexico working to improve the conditions and labor rights of maquilladora workers um, along the U.S.-Mexican border. So thank you so much, Julia. We always start by asking our guests to describe uh, what they're wearing, honoring the people that made their clothes and why they are important to you. So can you tell us a little bit um, what you're wearing today? Muchas gracias por la invitación. En este momento yo estoy usando un jeans de mezclilla que está hecho en Costa Rica y una camiseta color rosa mexicano que fue confeccionada. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm wearing uh, jeans made in Costa Rica and a pink blouse made in a maquiladora named uh, Dignidad y Justicia, Dignity and Justice, that it is uh, a project of us, a justice project, a textile project that helps workers, unemployed workers, uh, to help them um, live a, a dignified life. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Julia. Um, so can you share with us now a little bit about your journey to working in organizing around workers' rights and your activism? 20, 40 years working as an activist for labor rights, 
My first job was in a, a garment maquiladora. It's a factory, a factory that made a, a, a different kinds of pants with different brands here in Piedras Negras. We made uh, trousers for exportation to the U.S. In that time, the factories used to um, uh, request a pregnancy test if you want to work in. And it was really un uncomfortable because I began working before I, I had my first menstruation. For me, it was really uncomfortable because I began working at 15 years old. And I, um, in that time, uh, I haven't had my first period. So I have to invite, invent the date. I have to lie and, and say the date. So they didn't think that I was really too young to work in the factory. I used to work in the day. I worked in a different garment maquiladoras. I used to work in the day and studied uh, social work, the, the social work career at night, because I wanted to change the conditions in which um, women workers uh, were living in the factories. The, the first changes we... Um, we made is that we helped uh, so many women to to really lose, to be frightened to speak, uh, because the the perception was that women were um, more um, easy to treat, and um, that that they will not complain of anything. Thanks so much. So as a worker-led organization working with garment factory workers in the border area, we know that your organization is playing an incredibly critical role. If you can share a little bit of a little bit more about, you know, how you got started and why it feels so important to you in this in this moment and always. Comité Fronterizo de Obreras is a grassroots organization, one of the oldest. They have presence, it's a regional grassroots organization. They have presence in Tamaulipas, Coahuila, and they used to be also in Chihuahua. But because of the violence against women in that state, they had to get out. Uh, and so they continue in Tamaulipas and Coahuila. We began organizing women to, to really defy that perception that women were more easy to manage and um, that they, they will... They, they, they can manage better because we didn't complain. We began working with low profile, visiting workers in, in, in their houses. And we did little meetings uh, with workers outside of the factory. So they really can feel confident. They were little meeting, meetings with little uh, people there. So they, they uh, began to feel confident to talk about what they were living and strategize what to do to to, to, to work in better conditions for them inside the factory. So we began with this kind of strategies, as I, as I said, little meetings, visiting them in their houses, also giving them education and new knowledge to empower them. We also made sociodrama and um, different strategies so they can be empowered and they could confront their um, employers in the factories uh, to to defend their own uh, labor rights. So what we saw is when they had the courage of uh, uh, confronting their employers, 
and and they were empowered they also improved their own lives because they they changed the way in the what uh, in which they were living if they were living with domestic violence they um they really make a change and also confront that situation. What we see is that if, if we empowered women workers, the changes are integral to all the aspects and sectors of their lives. Thanks so much, Julia. So it's really important um, for us to lift up really concrete ways that our listeners can be in solidarity with workers. Um, and we'd, I'd love to ask you, you know, do you have any recommendations, any suggestions? How can people listening to this podcast really be in solidarity with you and with your organization? I think in, in, in several ways. Uh, first of all, it's really important to raise awareness uh, with all the community of what is really happening with this information, with the reality uh, of of what is happening inside the factory to raise awareness with the brands so they know why it's important to give just wages. It is a fact of dignity. Uh, And it is important uh, also to really be aware of of how your clothes are made. Be conscious about that. Another thing that I think is really important is to raise awareness that women workers are suffering in all industries, not only in the garment in the garment factories or in the garment sector, in all other sectors, in the automotive automotive sector, in the electronic sector, because we use all these things. We we not only use clothes, we also use computers and we also use a car. And in those sectors, it is important to notice what is happening also with women inside them. Almost all the products that we are using at home have uh, exploitation. They 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 are produced with explode with the exploitation of of women workers in them. So during these incredibly difficult times um, and in a context that is so hostile, um, share with me what brings you joy and strength and hope. What changes do you think are possible? What gives me hope is that I. I know that this will pass and uh, you know I I really know that women no matter what we are learning we are strong I hope in the future we will be able to work all together to join efforts with more equity things will be better things will be better in the future I think we can do it through the dialogue through the dialogue with the employers they have to know that when uh, that that if women workers they have dignity and better labor conditions they will be more productive and there will be uh, they they will all win together. Thank you so much, Julia, for your time and for sharing you know all the incredible work that you're doing. Um, it's a real honor to to speak to you today. Gracias a ustedes. Our final speaker of this podcast is Tanya Turner, the Executive Director of Fondo Semillas in Mexico. Thanks so much for joining this podcast, Tanya. We're really, you know, really happy to welcome you here. And just to say thank you so much for the translation for Julia from the previous interview. Really excited to lift up the incredible work of Fondo Semillas and the critical role that women's funds are playing at this moment and always. Can you share a little bit about your, you know, your work with Fondo Semillas in supporting garment factory workers 
um, and collective organizing in Mexico. Fondo Semillas is a women's feminist fund that supports grassroots organizations led by women, girls and trans people. We support them with grants, but also with capacity building and providing them opportunities for articulation and networking. For us, it's really, really important to know and understand the context in which women live and interact. And we bet for grassroots organizations because we know that being so close to the field, having experienced themselves the problems that women are living in specific sectors, it is important because they know better what is needed to help themselves and other women. Almost from the beginning, we begin supporting uh, the garment sector and in general, the maquiladora sector. We know the work inside the maquilas have never been good. In fact, I think now it's worse than in the beginning of the maquiladora program back in the 70s. Even before the pandemic, the thing, this competition uh, between countries to really lower the wages and give better taxes to to attract investments in this really intensive process of work and with low wages. This, this competition between countries is paid by the workers. When the Maquiladora program began in the 70s, there was not this model of subcontracting. So it was the brand itself that has a factory. Then, you know, with the neoliberalism and with all this model of the companies like subcontracting parts of the process, now the factories are not owned by the company. For example, the maquilas here, they are not owned by Levi's or by Gap or by whatever brand you... And now we know that there are a lot of brands that they are like conditioning some of the factories here in Mexico to enhance and improve the conditions for women workers in their factories. So they give them contracts. If they do not improve that conditions, they take away the contract with them. But, you know, it is really, really difficult because uh, here in Mexico, there is corruption and impunity uh, system is all over all the sectors. Colectivo Raiz, that it is one of the grassroots organizations uh, working in Aguascalientes, they made a big study with 132 women workers of their health conditions. And what they encountered was really, really bad because 132 workers interviewed, all of them reported some form of physical discomfort. From neck pain, 70%, to anxiety, 80%, and exhaustion. When resourcing local organizations, like what for you feels like the most important? All the movement of labor rights have been led a lot of time by men. It doesn't help also that we now have these new models in which labor is like segmenting itself and there is like a change in the idea of for example, home office and distant work. Because if you are a privileged worker, as, as I am, like I can, I can work from home, I use a computer and I live in a city. But for these women workers, working from home is or not receiving a wage or out self-exploiting themselves to accomplish, as I said, a quote of pieces so they can deliver to the employer and so get paid. 
And this kind of things doesn't allow women to have the time to organize, the time to reflect, and then the time to fight for their own rights. We are pushing forward so more and more women can can get support and organize themselves. It is not easy for the uh, national framework, for the violence we are living, and also because of the labor rights movement. So as this is the first time, um, you know, we're welcoming a funder and a women's fund onto the podcast, I wanted to spend just a little bit of time explaining what is a women's fund and how critical their work is for supporting grassroots activists um, and, you know, providing that long-term funding. So women's funds are the resourcing arm of the feminist movement and other social movements. And, you know, they're really supporting emergent, unregistered, informal groups and movements, providing that unrestricted, flexible funding, connecting groups to other organisations and really being in solidarity, resourcing the brave and so, so needed work on the front lines. Fondo Semillas is one of you know, many women's funds doing this work around the world and really playing that critical role of redistributing resources and also supporting sort of shifting cultures of giving, philanthropic culture, um, because it, supporting these organisations to do that regranting is, is just so, so incredibly important. And it's actually a way as individuals you can also you know, be part of that change and actually support financially. So, Tanya, can you share a little bit about, you know, for you, what is the difference between women's funds and other foundations, other organizations, and, you know, what is your role in the ecosystem? This is important. I think that as women's fund, we are different from a foundation and different from a graduate or from, from a civil society organization. The difference with a foundation is that we do not have our own resources to give grants to the, to the organizations we support. So we have to to mobilize resources, to seek for funders, to seek for donors that can give us money so we can spread that to the grassroots organizations and to the feminist movement and women's movement. But also we are different from a foundation because we do not only give them grants, but we accompany them so they can have a process of capacity building. We, uh, we try to reach those organizations that have never received money from any donor, they are part of the women suffering a specific situation. So that's why I said the grassroots organizations that we are supporting, some of them were or still are uh, women workers in the garment sector or in the maquiladora sector. We give them uh, capacity building. We develop meetings in which we try to articulate and link the, the grassroots uh, organizations' representatives with key actors that can help them to, to do something about communications, about advocacy. As Women's Fund, we are part of a broader network of Women's funds internationally. For us, is to put in the table that we are all an ecosystem, that we all want to change the world in a positive way, to make a world more inclusive, more equal, more uh, friendly for for women, for men, for girls, for trans people. The thing is that we want to change also the philanthropy ecosystem to think themselves as part of this activism, as part of this changing reality. Everything we are doing, each of us, it is important for changing the future. 
And we also have this rapid response fund because we know this crisis, like the one we are um, living now with the pandemic, really hit more to women in so many aspects. And as a final question, um, can you share a little bit about what are your hopes for the future for the fashion industry, for the, you know, for systemic change and, and for the world? I said I was a privileged worker and, and I work in a privileged fund because I can see the response of the ecosystem from the donors part in this pandemic. And it is something that really, really gives me hope. Also that some things that makes me really happy is to know that there are a lot of ally donors. We have to rethink about what you ask me, uh, how our clothes are made, who made them and how they were made, the circularity. We only have one world and in this world we are all living together. We are in an important point of history and we have to be active. really overwhelming listening to Julia and all of the workers from the last weeks. It's incredibly clear that people are only asking for their basic dignity, for their work to be seen, for it to be valued and compensated, and for their health and lives to be worth something. Hearing Tanya speak about how if workers don't actually finish the amount of garments they've been asked to fill, the quotas, that they actually receive no money this disregard um, for people's time, people's labor, just shows you, you know, how incredibly valuable collective organizing is to create that solidarity and support and really concrete negotiation to push for individual and collective labor rights. Reflecting back on our interviews in this episode, we were reminded that the entire system is designed to prioritize profits and exploitation over people. It's not a mistake when we hear of these violations. The system itself is what has to change. These three speakers provide us with a lot of hope, each working from different perspectives to reform the current system and reimagine a new one based on solidarity and dignity for those who make our clothes. Actions make movements. From the interviews with Tulsi, Julia and Tanya and the many conversations we've had with workers around the world, we know that we must elevate workers' power. From the connections that Julia draws between the garment industry and other similar industries where women are exploited, to Tanya's analysis of the ecosystem of support for workers, from funders to unions to consumers, explaining that we all have a role to play in building a more just and fair system. Seeing solidarity between workers are at the core of any solution. We know from all of these conversations that the most direct way to show solidarity for garment workers right now is to donate to strengthen their collective fight for change. But there are lots of other ways to practice solidarity that all of our guests so far have reminded us. And they look like this. Demand more from the brands you follow so we can start to change our broken system. Contact them on social media, write to them directly to ask and demand they provide relief during COVID and pay living wages. Demand more change from your government. 
use your voice on social media to lift up the stories, ambitions and collective demands of garment workers and raise awareness with family and friends. Educate yourself on how workers are building power. And you can also choose to buy better or buy less, upcycle or wear a hashtag triple OTD, which is an old outfit of the day with pride. By doing these things, you will become part of a new kind of economy that proves there's a better way to care for the clothes we buy, the people who make them and the planet we all live on. In the next episode, we are rounding up this six-part series as we unpack why capitalism is the virus and how we can be allies in dismantling this system. In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram and Patreon at Remember Who Made Them.